This is section three of Some Rambling Notes of an Idle Excursion by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some Rambling Notes of an Idle Excursion by Mark Twain. Chapter three. So the Reverend and I had at last arrived at Hamilton, the principal town in the Bermuda Islands. A wonderfully white town, white as snow itself, white as marble, white as flower yet looking like none of these exactly. Never mind, we said, we shall hit upon a figure by and by that will describe this peculiar white. It was a town that was compacted together upon the sides and tops of a cluster of small hills. Its outlying borders fringed off and thinned away among the cedar forests, and there was no woody distance of curving coast or leafy islet sleeping upon the dimpled painted sea, but was flecked with shining white points half-concealed houses peeping out of the foliage. The architecture of the town was mainly Spanish, inherited from the colonists of two hundred and fifty years ago. Some ragged-topped cocoa-palms, glimpsed here and there, gave the land a tropical aspect. There was an ample pier of heavy masonry. Upon this, under shelter, were some thousands of barrels containing that product which has carried the fame of Bermuda to many lands, the potato with here and there an onion. That last sentence is facetious, for they grow at least two onions in Bermuda, to one potato. The onion is the pride and joy of Bermuda. It is her jewel, her gem of gems. In her conversation, her pulpit, her literature, it is her most frequent and eloquent figure. In Bermuda metaphor it stands for perfection, perfection absolute. The Bermudian, weeping over the departed, exhausts praise when he says, He was an onion! The Bermudian, extolling the living hero, bankrupts applause when he says, He is an onion! The Bermudian, setting his son upon the stage of life to dare and do for himself, climaxes all counsel, supplication, admonition, comprehends all ambition when he says, Be an onion! When parallel with the pier, and ten or fifteen steps outside it, we anchored. It was Sunday, bright and sunny. The groups upon the pier—men, youths, and boys—were whites and blacks in about equal proportion. All were well and neatly dressed, many of them natally, a few of them very stylishly. One would have to travel far before he would find another town of twelve thousand inhabitants that could represent itself so respectably in the matter of clothes on a freight pier without premeditation or effort. The women and young girls, black and white, who occasionally passed by, were nicely clad, and many were elegantly and fashionably so. The men did not affect summer clothing much, but the girls and women did, and their white garments were good to look at after so many months of familiarity with somber colors. Around one isolated potato-barrel stood four young gentlemen, two black, two white, becomingly dressed, each with the head of a slender cane pressed against his teeth, and each with a foot propped up on the barrel. Another young gentleman came up, looked longingly at the barrel, but saw no rest for his foot there, and turned pensively away to seek another barrel. He wandered here and there, but without result. Nobody sat upon a barrel as is the custom of the idle in other lands, yet all the isolated barrels were humanly occupied. Whosoever had a foot to spare put it on a barrel, if all the places on it were not already taken. 
the habits of all peoples are determined by their circumstances the bermudians lean upon barrels because of the scarcity of lamp-posts many citizens came on board and spoke eagerly to the officers inquiring about the turco-russian war news i supposed however by listening judiciously i found that this was not so they said what is the price of onions or how's onions naturally enough this was their first interest but they dropped into the war the moment it was satisfied we went ashore and found a novelty of a pleasant nature there were no hackmen hacks or omnibuses on the pier or about it anywhere and nobody offered his services to us or molested us in any way i said it was like being in heaven the reverend rebukingly and rather pointedly advised me to make the most of it then we knew of a boarding-house and what we needed now was somebody to pilot us to it presently a little barefooted colored boy came along whose raggedness was conspicuously un-bermudian his rear was so marvelously bepatched with colored squares and triangles that one was half persuaded he had got it out of an atlas when the sun struck him right he was as good to follow as a lightning-bug we hired him and dropped into his wake he piloted us through one picturesque street after another and in due course deposited us where we belonged he charged nothing for his map and but a trifle for his services so the reverend doubled it the little chap received the money with a beaming applause in his eye which plainly said this man's an onion we had brought no letters of introduction our names had been misspelled in the passenger list nobody knew whether we were honest folk or otherwise so we were expecting to have a good private time in case there was nothing in our general aspect to close boarding-house doors against us we had no trouble bermuda has had but little experience of rascals and is not suspicious we got large cool well-lighted rooms on a second floor overlooking a bloomy display of flowers and flowering shrubscalia and annunciation lilies lantanas heliotrope jasmine roses pinks double geraniums oleanders pomegranates blue morning glories of great size and many plants that were unknown to me we took a long afternoon walk and soon found out that that exceedingly white town was built of blocks of white coral bermuda is a coral island with a six-inch crust of soil on top of it and every man has a quarry on his own premises everywhere you go you see square recesses cut into the hillsides with perpendicular walls unmarred by crack or crevice and perhaps you fancy that a house grew out of the ground there and has been removed in a single piece from the mould if you do you err but the material for a house has been quarried there they cut right down through the coral to any depth that is convenient ten to twenty feet and take it out in great square blocks this cutting is done with a chisel that has a handle twelve or fifteen feet long and is used as one uses a crowbar when he is drilling a hole or a dasher when he is churning thus soft is this stone then with a common handsaw they saw the great blocks into handsome huge bricks that are two feet long a foot wide and about six inches thick these stand loosely piled during a month to harden then the work of building begins the house is built of these blocks it is roofed with broad coral slabs an inch thick 
whose edges lap upon each other, so that the roof looks like a succession of shallow steps or terraces. The chimneys are built of the coral blocks, and sawed into graceful and picturesque patterns. The ground-floor veranda is paved with coral blocks. Also the walk to the gate. The fence is built of coral blocks, built in massive panels with broad capstones and heavy gate-posts, and the whole trimmed into easy lines and comely shape with the saw. Then they put a hard coat of whitewash, as thick as your thumbnail, on the fence and all over the house, roof, chimneys, and all. The sun comes out and shines on this spectacle, and it is time for you to shut your unaccustomed eyes, lest they be put out. It is the whitest white you can conceive of, and the blindingest. A Bermuda house does not look like marble. It is a much intenser white than that. And, besides, there is a dainty, indefinable something else about its look that is not marble-like. We put in a great deal of solid talk and reflection over this matter of trying to find a figure that would describe the unique white of a Bermuda house, and we contrived to hit upon it at last. It is exactly the white of the icing of a cake, and has the same unemphasized and scarcely perceptible polish. The white of marble is modest and retiring compared with it. After the house is cased in its hard scale of whitewash, not a crack or sign of a seam or joining of the blocks is detectable, from base stone to chimney-top. The building looks as if it had been carved from a single block of stone, and the doors and windows sawed out afterward. A white marble house has a cold, tomb-like, unsociable look, and takes the conversation out of a body and depresses him. Not so with a Bermuda house there is something exhilarating even hilarious about its vivid whiteness when the sun plays upon it if it be of picturesque shape and graceful contour and many of the bermudian dwellings are it will so fascinate you that you will keep your eyes on it until they ache one of those clean-cut fanciful chimneys too pure and white for this world with one side glowing in the sun and the other touched with a soft shadow is an object that will charm one's gaze by the hour. I know of no other country that has chimneys worthy to be gazed at and gloated over. One of those snowy houses, half concealed and half glimpsed through green foliage, is a pretty thing to see, and if it takes one by surprise and suddenly, as he turns a sharp corner of a country road, it will wring an exclamation from him, sure. Wherever you go, in town or country, you find those snowy houses, and always with masses of bright-colored flowers about them, but with no vines climbing their walls. Vines cannot take hold of the smooth, hard whitewash. Wherever you go, in the town or along the country roads, among little potato farms and patches or expensive country seats, these stainless white dwellings, gleaming out from flowers and foliage, meet you at every turn. The least little bit of a cottage is as white and blemishless as the stateliest mansion. Nowhere is there dirt or stench, puddle or hog-wallow, neglect, disorder, or lack of trimness and neatness. The roads, the streets, the dwellings, the people, the clothes, this neatness extends to everything that falls under the eye. It is the tidiest country in the world, and very much the tidiest, too. Considering these things, the question came up, where do the poor live? No answer was arrived at. 
Therefore we agreed to leave this conundrum for future statesmen to wrangle over. What a bright and startling spectacle one of those blazing white country palaces, with its brown-tinted window-caps and ledges, and green shutters, and its wealth of caressing flowers and foliage, would be in black London! And what a gleaming surprise it would be in nearly any American city one could mention, too! Bermuda roads are made by cutting down a few inches into the solid white coral, or a good many feet where a hill intrudes itself, and smoothing off the surface of the roadbed. It is a simple and easy process. The grain of the coral is coarse and porous. The roadbed has the look of being made of coarse white sugar. Its excessive cleanness and whiteness are a trouble in one way. The sun is reflected into your eyes with such energy as you walk along that you want to sneeze all the time. Old Captain Tom Bowling found another difficulty. He joined us in our walk, but kept wandering unrestfully to the roadside. Finally he explained, said he, "'Well, I chew, you know, and the road's so plagued clean.' We walked several miles that afternoon, in the bewildering glare of the sun, the white roads, and the white buildings. Our eyes got to painting us a good deal. By and by a soothing blessed twilight spread its cool balm around. We looked up in pleased surprise, and saw that it proceeded from an intensely black negro who was going by. We answered his military salute in the grateful gloom of his near presence, and then passed on into the pitiless white glare again. The colored women whom we met usually bowed and spoke. So did the children. The colored men commonly gave the military salute. They borrow this fashion from the soldiers, no doubt. England has kept a garrison here for generations. The younger men's custom of carrying small canes is also borrowed from the soldiers, I suppose, who always carry a cane, in Bermuda, as everywhere else in Britain's broad dominions. The country roads curve and wind hither and thither in the delightfulest way, unfolding pretty surprises at every turn billowy masses of oleander that seem to float out from behind distant projections like the pink cloud-banks of sunset, sudden plunges among cottages and gardens, life and activity, followed by as sudden plunges into sombre twilight and stillness of the woods, flitting visions of white fortresses and beacon-towers pictured against the sky on remote hilltops, glimpses of shining green sea caught for a moment through opening headlands, then lost again more woods and solitude, and by and by another turn lays bare, without warning, the full sweep of the inland ocean, enriched with its bars of soft color and graced with its wandering sails. Take any road you please, you may depend upon it you will not stay in it half a mile. Your road is everything that a road ought to be, it is bordered with trees and with strange plants and flowers, it is shady and pleasant, or sunny and still pleasant it carries you by the prettiest and peacefulest and most homelike of homes and through stretches of forest that lie in a deep hush sometimes and sometimes are alive with the music of birds it curves always which is a continual promise whereas straight roads reveal everything at a glance and kill interest your road is all this and yet you will not stay in it half a mile for the reason that little seductive mysterious roads are always branching out from it on either hand and as these curve sharply also and hide what is beyond 
you cannot resist the temptation to desert your own chosen road and explore them. You are usually paid for your trouble. Consequently, your walk inland always turns out to be one of the most crooked, involved, purposeless, and interesting experiences a body can imagine. There is enough of variety. Sometimes you are in the level open, with marshes thick-grown with flag-lances that are ten feet high on the one hand, and potato and onion orchards on the other. Next you are on a hilltop, with the ocean and the islands spread around you. Presently the road winds through a deep cut, shut in by perpendicular walls thirty or forty feet high, marked with the oddest and abruptest stratum-lines, suggestive of sudden and eccentric old upheavals and garnished with here and there a clinging adventurous flower, and here and there a dangling vine. And, by and by, your way is along the sea-edge, and you may look down a fathom or two through the transparent water, and watch the diamond-like flash and play of the light upon the rocks and sands on the bottom, until you are tired of it, if you are so constituted as to be able to get tired of it. You may march the country roads in maiden meditation, fancy-free, by field and farm, for no dog will plunge out at you from unsuspected gate, with breathtaking surprise of ferocious bark, notwithstanding it is a Christian land, and a civilized. We saw upward of a million cats in Bermuda, but the people are very abstemious in the matter of dogs. Two or three nights we prowled the country far and wide, and never once were accosted by a dog. It is a great privilege to visit such a land. The cats were no offense when properly distributed, but when piled, they obstructed travel. As we entered the edge of the town that Sunday afternoon, we stopped at a cottage to get a drink of water. The proprietor, a middle-aged man with a good face, asked us to sit down and rest. His dame brought chairs, and we grouped ourselves in the shade of the trees by the door. Mr. Smith—that uh, was not his name, but it will answer—questioned us about ourselves and our country and we answered him truthfully, as a general thing, and questioned him in return. It was all very simple and pleasant and sociable. Rural, too, for there was a pig and a small donkey and a hen anchored out, close at hand, by cords to their legs, on a spot that purported to be grassy. Presently a woman passed along, and although she coldly said nothing, she changed the drift of our talk. Said Smith, "'She didn't look this way, you noticed?' Well, she is our next neighbor on one side, and there's another family that's our next neighbors on the other side. But there's a general coolness all around now, and we don't speak. Yet these three families, one generation and another, have lived here side by side and been as friendly as weavers for a hundred and fifty years, till about a year ago. Why, what calamity could have been powerful enough to break up so old a friendship? Well, it was too bad, but it couldn't be helped. It happened like this. About a year or more ago, the rats got to pestering my place a good deal, and I set up a steel trap in my back yard. Both of these neighbors run considerable to cats, and so I warned them about the trap, because their cats were pretty sociable around here nights, and they might get into trouble without my intending it. Well, they shut up their cats for a while, but you know how it is with people. They got careless, and sure enough one night the trap took Mrs. Jones' principal tomcat into camp, and finished him up. 
in the morning mrs jones comes here with the corpse in her arms and cries and takes on the same as if it was a child it was a cat by the name of yelverton hector g yelverton a troublesome old rip with no more principle than an injun though you couldn't make her believe it i said all a man could do to comfort her but no nothing would do but i must pay for him finally i said i weren't investing in cats now as much as i was and with that she walked off in a huff carrying the remains with her that closed our intercourse with the joneses mrs jones joined another church and took her tribe with her she said she would not hold fellowship with assassins well by and by comes mrs brown's turn she that went by here a minute ago she had a disgraceful old yellow cat that she thought as much of as if he was twins and one night he tried that trap on his neck and it fitted him so and was so sort of satisfactory that he laid down and curled up and stayed with it such was the end of sir john baldwin was that the name of the cat the same there's cats around here with names that would surprise you maria to his wife what was that cat's name that eat a keg of ratsbane by mistake over at hooper's and started home and got struck by lightning and took the blind staggers and fell in the well and was most drowned before they could fish him out that was that colored deacon jackson's cat i only remember the last end of its name which was hold the fort for i am coming jackson sho that ain't the one that's the one that eat up an entire box of seedlitz powders and then hadn't any more judgment than to go and take a drink he was considered to be a great loss but i never could see it well no matter about the names mrs brown wanted to be reasonable but mrs jones wouldn't let her she put her up to going to law for damages so to law she went and had the face to claim seven shillings and sixpence it made a great stir all the neighbors went to court everybody took sides it got hotter and hotter and broke up all the friendships for three hundred yards around friendships that had lasted for generations and generations well i proved by eleven witnesses that the cat was of a low character and very ornery and warn't worth a cancelled postage stamp anyway taking the average of cats here but i lost the case what could i expect the system is all wrong here and is bound to make revolution and bloodshed some day you see they give the magistrate a poor little starvation salary and then turn him loose on the public to gouge for fees and costs to live on what is the natural result why he never looks into the justice of a case never once all he looks at is which client has got the money so this one piled the fees and costs and everything on to me i could pay specie don't you see and he knew mighty well that if he put the verdict on to mrs brown where it belonged he'd have to take his swag in currency currency why has bermuda a currency yes onions and they were forty per cent discount too then because the season had been over as much as three months so i lost my case i had to pay for that cat but the general trouble the case made was the worst thing about it broke up so much good feeling the neighbors don't speak to each other now mrs brown had named a child after me but she changed its name right away she is a baptist well in the course of baptizing it over again it got drowned i was hoping we might get to be friendly again some time or other 
but of course this drowning the child knocked that all out of the question it would have saved a world of heartbreak and ill blood if she had named it dry i knew by the sigh that this was honest all this trouble and all this destruction of confidence in the purity of the bench on account of a seven-shilling lawsuit about a cat somehow it seemed to size the country at this point we observed that an english flag had just been placed at half-mast on a building a hundred yards away i and my friends were busy in an instant trying to imagine whose death among the island dignitaries could command such a mark of respect as this then a shudder shook them and me at the same moment and i knew that we had jumped to one and the same conclusion the governor has gone to england it is for the british admiral at this moment mr smith noticed the flag he said with emotion that's on a boarding-house i judge there's a boarder dead a dozen other flags within view went to half-mast it's a boarder sure said smith but would they half-mast the flags here for a boarder mr smith why certainly they would if he was dead that seemed to size the country again end of chapter three